Welcome to Monticello Podcasts, where we look at various aspects of Monticello, Thomas Jefferson, and the work of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has owned and operated Monticello since 1923. I'm Chad Woolerton, Monticello's webmaster. This time we present a talk by Gordon Wood, considered by many to be the preeminent scholar of the early American Republic, on how perceptions of the natural environment of the New World shaped how Europeans viewed Americans and how Americans viewed themselves. Professor Wood gave the talk as part of an international conference on the Old World and the New, Exchanges Between America and Europe in the Age of Jefferson, which was sponsored by Monticello's Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies and the Salzburg Seminar. The talk, the long in comparison to our other podcasts, is as entertaining throughout as it is informative. Well, the last time that Gordon Wood spoke at the Salzburg Seminar, a mad Irishman, and I'm using his words, uh, got up and started shouting and heckling him, which rather bemused him because he knew that none of the audience could hear him. I promised this evening that we would be better behaved. I'm not... (laughs) I'm not... uh, I'm not going to regale you with all his achievements. They were quite evident just from the footnotes of your papers, nearly all of which cited Gordon Wood. And I'm looking forward to hearing this feast of reason. Thank you. Well... This is a a very unenviable position to be in right now. Uh, John McCusker, uh, earlier this week, as you know, uh, set a very high standard for after-dinner talks, 35 minutes. Uh, I'm not going to be able to make that, I'm afraid. Um, I, I didn't know how to cut it without cutting out the whole heart of it. But I have got some advice that I can offer you that might make us get through this evening a little easier. Um, one of the characters in the, in the period that you all know about, I think he's actually as uh, much of a personification of the American Enlightenment, if there is such a thing, as Jefferson, and that's Benjamin Rush, um, who has not really got a good biography, which is strange. But at any rate, Rush... Um, He's the kind of guy you really uh, you feel that he would write at home today. I mean, he, he was into every kind of uh, health fad. He was fascinated with diets of all sorts. He became a vegetarian. I mean, he would be in Whole Foods all the time, that kind of thing. And uh, he, uh, he would have been a jogger, and, and he, uh, he would have written a health column, I think, in, the, in the, a newspaper. He was in every benevolent cause you could imagine. Uh, Jeremy uh, Belknap called him Mr. Greatheart after the character in uh, Bunyan's uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress who attacked all the goblins and hobgoblins that stood in the way of getting to the celestial uh, city. In 1769, he made some notes about eating, which I think are appropriate for us uh, tonight. He observed that Indians, whom he called uh, nature's children, ate their principal meal at night after the fatigue of hunting, fishing, or or marching in war was, was over. 
Unlike the colonists, as you know, um, they, in the 18th century, they ate their major meal in the middle of the afternoon. And he thought that was a big mistake uh, in mid-afternoon. Civilized people uh, therefore tended to condemn the Indians' practice of eating their big meal at night. And he thought that was a terrible mistake. Indians know better what's good for us, he said. We should follow the Indians and such what he called an unerring law of nature. The reason, he said, is that it is good to eat uh, the main meal at night is because we should go to sleep right after eating the main meal. And I'm quoting him here. It is always most wholesome to sleep after eating. This is the practice of all the brute animals we're uh, familiar with. Nature, this is the line I really like that's appropriate. Nature recoils from business of all kinds after a hearty meal. You see what I'm up against? Uh, nor is this, is this to be wondered at when we consider that the digestion of the food in the stomach is carried on chiefly by fermentation to which rest, we know, contributes so much that so that the fermentation can be complete, so that no fermentation can be complete without this rest. So I want you to feel free uh, to nod off and do what's naturally. So uh, I, I'm not uh, going to disturb uh, the nature. Now, what I'm talking about, we, you know, we to get some context, we talk all the time about global warming. We're frightened to death of our environmental changes, uh, you know, acid rain and a whole bunch of things that are all afflicting us in this constant con concern about this Kyoto Treaty and so on. But, you know, compared to the environmental hazards that the, uh, the, the problems faced by the, the nation at the very beginning of our history, uh, our present difficulties and, and anxieties aren't all that great. Uh, at least we have the Environmental Protection Agency to look after us. Uh, um, <laughs> Americans living in the early republic, however, uh, at the end of the 18th century, in the beginning of the 19th century, had no such protection, and they faced a threat from their environment that we can scarcely uh, uh, appreciate. Now, you know most of this, I think, but it's worth emphasizing, it's worth taking seriously, uh, as they did. Americans at the early, in the early republic were told by the best scientific authorities of the, in the Western world at the time uh, that the entire natural environment of America, its climate, as it was called, broader meaning than we have, was deleterious to animal life, all living creatures. This was not a case of, uh, of uh, uh, people uh, polluting the water here and there or of some industri industrialists uh, allowing poisonous materials to escape into the atmosphere. The environmental problems of the early republic were not man-made, and that was what made them so frightening. They apparently were inherent in nature itself. There was simply something terribly wrong with the climate of, of America in the New World that made it harmful to all living creatures. Now, this wasn't the uh, ideas of some crackpot, uh, some fanatic European who really hated America. Uh, it, was, uh, it was the conclusion of one of the greatest naturalists of the Western world, and a man uh, who really was, uh, in the 18th century, the equal of, of what Darwin was to the 19th century. He was the premier naturalist, even more important than Linnaeus. This is the French scientist Buffon. In uh, his long, rambling, 30-odd volumes of his natural history that published uh, over uh, uh, a lengthy period between 1749 and carried on even after his death in 1800, he 
presented a profoundly pessimistic but scientifically grounded picture of the American environment. There was in the New World, he said, and some of this is very familiar to you, I know, but it's worth emphasizing, some combination of elements and other physical causes, something that opposes the amplification of animated nature. The American continents, he said, were truly newer than those of the other side of the Atlantic. They had remained longer under the flood. They had, it seemed, only recently uh, emerged from, from the biblical flood and, and had as not yet properly dried out. So uh, the land in America, he said, was wetter than that of the old world, still soft and soggy from, from, the, from the flood. The American air was more moist, more humid. The topography was more irregular. The weather was more variable. The forests and, and miasmatic swamps were more extensive. There were more noxious exhalations. In short, it was not a healthy place to live. Animals in the New World, he said, Buffon said, were underdeveloped, undeveloped, sw smaller than those of the Old World. The American puma was not a real lion at all. It did not even have a mane, he said, and, it, and he wrote, it is also much smaller, weaker, and more cowardly than the real lion. <laughs> there were no elephants in the New World. In fact, there was nothing in America that could even be compared to the elephants of, of, uh, in size or, or shape. The best that Americans could do, uh, Buffon wrote sarcastically, was the taper of Brazil. But this elephant of the New World, as he called it, uh, was no bigger than a six-month-old calf. There were no rhinoceroses, no hippopotamuses, no camels, no giraffes. All the American animals were four, six, eight, and ten times smaller than those of the older continents. Even the domestic animals who were introduced to the new, uh, new world, the goats, the horses, dogs, and so on, sheep, uh, remained, began to shrink and swindle, uh, to, to, to uh, dwindle under the, uh, uh, under the climate of, of this new world. Now, Buffon's conclusions about the environment were, were very stark and frightening, to say the least. Uh, living nature, he wrote, is thus much less active there, much less varied, and we may even say less strong. The only living things that, that uh, seem to flourish in, uh, in the New World, in this dank, wet American climate, were reptiles, snakes, toads, frogs, and other cold-blooded creatures that often uh, grew, as he said, to gigantic size. <laughs> um, now, it was uh, unsettling enough to learn that the uh, peculiar American habitat had affected animal life, uh, but uh, to learn that the environment of the New World was unhealthy for humans too, well, that was truly alarming. Buffon was, was sure that the American environment was what lay behind uh, this frozen development of the Indians, which always fascinated the uh, uh, Europeans, that the Indians seemed to be at the first stage of the, of the uh, uh, four-stage theory. The fact that they seemed to be only wandering savages without any complicated society. The Indians were like reptiles, said Buffon. They were cold-blooded. Their uh, organs of uh, generation are small and feeble. They had no hair, no beards, no ardor for their females. The Indian, I'm quoting here from Buffon, the Indians' uh, uh, <laughs> social bonds were, were weak. They had uh, few children and they paid little attention to the few they had. Somehow or other, this strange, moist climate of the New World was devastatingly, uh, had devastatingly affected 
the, uh, uh, the physical and, and social character, character of the only people who are native to the, to the New World. The outlook for other humans, Europeans, transplanted to this new uh, climate was therefore not, not a very happy one. Now, um, it's difficult to appreciate, I think, uh, the amount of ignorance that, uh, that Europeans had about the, the New World, even by the late 18th century. Jefferson, who had probably the best library in the world dealing with the geography and natural history of, of the American West, thought that the Rockies were no larger than the Blue Ridge Mountains and that there were still mammoths and other prehistoric creatures roaming around the upper Missouri River. Uh, and he was knowledgeable. Uh, von Humboldt had yet, not yet made his findings. And, would, and as we found out today, this, this would have a, uh, you know, a very uh, overwhelming effect on people's knowledge of the New World. Uh, Buffon, of course, had never come to the New World. He based all of his uh, findings on, on hearsay. Europeans uh, expected that the climate of the New World would be similar to that of the Old World. Uh, and it's, uh, difficult for, it was difficult for them to, to believe that it would be different. They assumed that places on the same latitude would have the same climate. Uh, and that was confusing to them. Uh, London, of course, is north of, it's in you know, the same latitude as Labrador, uh, north of, of Newfoundland. Uh, New York is on the same parallel as, as Rome. Southern France is on the same latitude as Nova Scotia. Uh, it was hard to believe that the old world and the new world had different climates because climate was associated with latitudes, with lines of, 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 uh, of, of equidistant from the poles. The assumption was that you would have the same uh, kind of climate. In fact, the first definition of climate in the OED is a belt of the Earth's surface contained between two given parallels of latitude. So the assumption was that these two places would be the same, which is why the pilgrims who landed in Cape Cod or Plymouth, um, they thought they were perfectly healthy, going to be have a nice uh, winter. They're much south, more south of London, and, and uh, they had not expected all that snow. So uh, it was very frightening that the uh, climate was different. It made the two worlds seem very different. They knew that the climates were different and what does this mean for us? What does it mean for human beings? And this was a real and I, and I think a serious uh, problem. Uh, these ideas of course are picked up by popularizers. Um, de Par, Abbe Renal, William Robertson, others and, and some of you mentioned this in, in your, your papers and carried into the popular literature uh, throughout Europe in, in the 18th century. Renal, of course, published his, uh, in 1770, uh, uh, a popular four-volume history of, of the uh, European colonies. And, and among the many things uh, he said, uh, one that really became very famous among Americans, um, it is astonishing that America has not yet produced a good poet, a skilled mathematician, a genius uh, in any art or, or, or science. Now, this was a charge that really hurt uh, the, the Americans and, and was often quoted by them uh, as a, a, in, in defi they're going to defy this if they could. Um, now, America, as you know, came, became caught up as a kind of political football in the arguments that uh, French philosophers in particular were having among themselves over the Ancien Regime. Uh, uh, and, and all this is told in a, in, in a great book that's now, I guess, uh, 40 or almost 50 years old, Durand Echeverria's uh, uh, Mirage in the West, a wonderful book. Uh, 
But for every Voltaire who is idealizing Pennsylvania and extended uh, America with all the Quakers and so on, there were others like Renal who were anxious to disparage uh, the, the New World. Um, it was sort of like America, but it was like the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s. People were testing the future on, based on this, uh, this new uh, uh, society. In 1785, Renal uh, sponsored a, in France a, a competition for the best essay on the topic, Has the Discovery of America Been Beneficial or Harmful to the Human Race? Uh, it's a kind of essay you might even get sponsored in Paris today, uh, I think. Um, <laughs> There were four. There were eight essays, so four on each side, and we don't know who won. Uh, but that's the kind of thinking that was flying around, and it was taken seriously. And that's what I think it's important that we we take it seriously as well. Um, for for Americans, the issue, of course, was no simple academic matter. Um, th their revolution was a grand, as we know only too well, this group knows, a grand experiment, uh, um, a test in a sense of, of popular government. But it was more. The revolution represented, I think, a flowering of, 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 a, of Western culture. There was a good deal of uh, quoting of Bishop Barclay's uh, verses on the, the prospect of planning the arts and sciences, uh, arts and learning in America. Westward, the course of empire takes its way uh, from the Near East to Greece to Rome to Western Europe, and now the final stage, it's going to cross the Atlantic and it's flowering in this, uh, in this new world. And revolutionary Americans uh, thought of themselves as, uh, as uh, the most cosmopolitan uh, people in the world. They saw themselves as the heirs of this uh, cultural uh, leadership in, in the Western world. And uh, they would be the leaders of the Republic of Letters. Uh, carrying the torch of Western civilization to greater illumination. They would uh, create, their own, create their own Homers, their own uh, Miltons. Uh, they had very high expectations for American culture, and they expected to have their own great geniuses. They would be in the vanguard of, of civilization, uh, not just in liberty and politics, but in all aspects of, of culture, in the arts and sciences. And so the hopes were very high, and, and of course... Uh, these scientific claims of Buffon and his popularizers put all of these grandiose dreams in doubt. If Buffon's scientific claims were true, then the prospects were not good. Some European intellectuals in the 18th century had often taunted the Americans for being little better than savages, and we've seen some of that in the papers that we read. But um, it, it, uh, now it seemed that the best scientific uh, findings, that uh, there might be some truth in all of these accusations. Instead of advancing civilization, the new citizens of the American Republic appeared at times, particularly in the new areas of the West, to be, uh, to be uh, little different from the savages and to be moving backwards, so to speak, uh, in, in, times, uh, in time uh, with a very unsociable behavior and barbarism. Americans in the generation following the revolution now reacted to all of these Claims, and they were educated people were well aware of them, uh, with with uh, in a variety of ways, with indignant dismissal, exaggerated boasting, or with extensive scientific comparisons. Now Jefferson, uh, who is I think the hero of my little story here, uh, reacted in all in in all three of these uh, these ways. Uh, the one I like best, the quick response that he made, is uh, where he says he concedes that it may be true. He wrote that America had twice as much rain as Europe, 
But that was okay because Americans, for, because in America, the rain fell in half the time. That was his <laughs> solution. Um, now, we need a context for understanding uh, the, uh, the concern of these post-revolutionary Americans with their environment. They were very touchy. On this, on this point. The French philosophe uh, uh, Volney, uh, Comte Volney, came here uh, for three years, as you know, fleeing from the excesses of the French Revolution, stayed in the United States in the 1790s. Um, and he complained endlessly about the climate in America. A and he discovered that Americans did not like his complaints. Americans, Volney wrote, resent these censures of their climate, almost as a personal offense. He found it hard, he said, to persuade Americans that their country is not the best in the world. Uh, now, the reason the Americans were so boastful uh, and so touchy was that I think they had an underlying dread or anxiety that the European critics might be right. There did seem to be something peculiar about America's climate. The same region uh, with... The, with the temperatures, uh, same region could have temperatures well below zero, and we know this if you come from Pennsylvania or New Jersey, well below zero in the winter and in well into the 90s Fahrenheit in the summer. Uh, and this, then they could have uh, swings of 40 degrees in a single 24-hour uh, period. There was no place in Europe that had quite these kinds of radical swings and, 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 and changes. Uh, there was more moisture in America, they believed, very high humidity. Uh, and that's, if you live in uh, New Jersey or Pennsylvania, you'd feel the same way. Uh, and there was more rainfall, too, um, that alternated with unusual number of sunny days, cloudless skies. And, of course, if you grew up in England or, or Scotland, you know most days are cloudy. And the rain, when it comes, is always just light. Little. But in America, you have these cloudless skies, sunny days, and then you'll have torrential rain. And that uh, was what they worried about. Um, the peculiarity, they concluded, was due to the heavy numbers of, the amounts of forest, heavy forests in America. Large amount of uncultivated land. They assumed, many of them assumed, that Europe used to be like this, eons ago, but they had cut down all their forests. And they kept a little black forest in Germany. We know how insignificant that is. Uh, but, they, but, they, but they had cut it all down, and this had uh, cleansed their climate of, of moisture. Uh, the problem was brought home to Americans, I think, um, by the devastating epidemic of, uh, epidemics of yellow fever that broke out in, in uh, Philadelphia and elsewhere in the, uh, in the 1790s. It began with this catastrophe in Philadelphia in 1793. As you know, 4,000 people were killed, about 10% of the population, huge. By today's standards, think of what that would mean, 10% of the city of New York uh, dying of, of a fever in a few months' time. Um, this was not duplicated elsewhere in the world, and so people were confused by this. Is this something peculiar to us? Uh, they were very concerned. They began, uh, Europeans began claiming, classifying us with the Barbary pirates, and you couldn't sail into Marseille in an American ship without being uh, uh, cleansed, or uh, there were all kinds of prohibitions uh, on, uh, on, on sailors uh, carrying diseases. And of course, this precipitated a fierce debate in America over what the causes were of this yellow fever, the origins. Some said that it came from the West Indies. Um, it was imported. It was contagious and imported from the West Indies. Others said, no, no, it's indigenous. It's coming out of 
American conditions. Uh, and, and the latter view, I think, this latter view is the one that, that dominated. Jefferson thought so. Uh, yellow fever, he said, and I'm quoting him here, was peculiar to our country, and there must be, and it must be derived from some peculiarity in it. That peculiarity I take to be our cloudless skies. Uh, there was twice as many sunny days in America as in Europe, and others said the same thing. It's the cloudless skies, all this sun coming down, uh, uh, penetrating or uh, permeating the the filth and creating this putrefaction. They love these terms, the effluvia that's coming out of the, essentially the rubbish and the garbage on the streets. And uh, this stuff was somehow being spread and creating uh, the yellow fever. Um, although American cities were scarcely crowded compared to uh, London or Liverpool or, or Paris, uh, the climate here was different and had a peculiar effect on the uh, on conditions. There were lots of articles and pamphlets in the 1790s and in the first decade of the 19th century on the problems of, of, uh, of these American cities. And, and as I say, the words of disgust flow freely. Putrefaction, effluvia, filth, morbific fluids. Those are the kinds of phrases they use to describe what's happening, which is essentially uh, the, the heat of the sun operating on, uh, on garbage. The dominant theory was that the intense heat uh, and, and was uh, and the various and the heavy moisture of the climate was was fermenting um, decayed animal and vegetable matter and releasing putrid gases. This effluvia uh, that was the source, ultimate source of the yellow fever. Now all the uh, leading intellectuals, uh, Noah Webster, uh, Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Latrobe, uh, Jefferson, all. It felt they had to tackle this problem. How do we deal with this? That it's an urban problem, uh, and they concocted elaborate plans, various degrees of elaborateness, uh, for cleaning up and redesigning America's cities in light of these concerns about the climate. Uh, now, Rush is interesting, and I, I want to go back. I want to say something about him because um, he was, uh, as you know, Dr. Rush was. Uh, uh, was probably the most well-known physician in the whole country. And, and he was uh, well-known as one of the great bleeders of, of, of his time. Um, he bled all of his patients because he had a theory that all diseases could be reduced to a fever. And uh, for fever, you treat it by bleeding. Now, the problem he had uh, was that he miscalculated the amount of blood in the human body. He thought that the human body, the average person, had 12 quarts of blood. Now, the average person has about half that, about six quarts. And Rush would take out five quarts over a day and a half. And there's no doubt that he lost a lot of his patients as a consequence. Uh, um, his, uh, the Philadelphia journalist, as you know, uh, William uh, Cobbett, uh, had, who had no love, of course, for Rush, thought that Russia's technique was one of those devices that come along every once in a while designed for the systematic depopulation of the earth. Uh, now, all of these, uh, Rush had his own theories, and, and others did too, uh, for, for, for urban renewal of one sort or another. Uh, Jefferson, uh, of course, didn't like cities in the first place, uh, and, and, but he knew if they had to be built, they should be built in a checkerboard fashion. Uh, with the, uh, with the uh, uh, houses built on the black squares. The white squares would be left free for uh, trees and vegetation to make sure there was a lot of what we call photosynthesis going on and prevent uh, uh, this effluvia from, from causing 
diseases. Now, the one, the character I've come across that I found most interesting is a guy named Dr. Charles Caldwell, who was a colleague, a young doctor in Philadelphia, who was a colleague of, of Russia's. Uh, he drew up the most elaborate plans for urban renewal. Now, he became quite a character. He went on to be, have a very uh, flourishing career uh, with phrenology, you know, the, the, the science. It was a science at the time. Feeling the skull and knowing how you could judge character from the skull. He used to start his lectures by saying, there are only three great, uh, uh, three great heads uh, in America today. is uh, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and modesty, modesty prevents me from naming the third. Uh, that's how he would start his lectures. Well, he, uh, he thought all of the cities were, were vast factories of this febrile poison, uh, that is yellow fever, uh, and they would all have to be rebuilt. His, um, because the people needed to live above the miasma, he suggested that all houses should have the first floor empty and, and everyone would live uh, in the second floor above the, uh, the effluvia, uh, two stories high, with thick walls and small uh, windows, more or less like Italy is the model he had. Uh, and then they should have lots of chestnut trees planted. He somehow decided that those were the trees that drew in most moisture and threw off good moisture. Uh, so uh, as a consequence, Philadelphia, uh, I've been told, has lots of chestnut trees as a, as a result of this kind of uh, uh, feel. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not chestnut. Lombardi poplars was his uh, solution, uh, a, uh, an Italian tree. But in the end, uh, he, no, he seems to have uh, conceded that the Europeans, he didn't even try to argue that they weren't correct. He says, yes, they, they're correct in their judgment about America's climate. Uh, instead of denying their charges, he turned them around by claiming that America's climate was simply more stupendous than, than any other climate. Nature, he wrote, was more gigantic in her operations. And then in an 1802 oration in Philadelphia, he really gets carried away uh, with himself. Compared to our nature, he, he, he said, uh, our nature in the new world, how humble are the mountains, rivers, lakes, and cataracts of the old world. And then he wheels in, as everybody did, Niagara Falls. Nothing like that in, in Europe. You've, that's, that's the mark of American greatness. And, and then he says, look at America's forests. Are not the forests of Europe swallowed up in the grandeur of those of America? How delightful then to reside in the bosom of such sublimity and who does not glory in being born an American. Uh, it stood the reason that America would have bigger and more powerful diseases. Our diseases... <laughs> our diseases are not only, I'm quoting him, are not only more frequent, but they aspire to the same scale of greatness with our other phenomena. And he goes on to defend his, his friend, Dr. Rush's scientific bloodletting. He says, American doctors had to take out so much more blood than European doctors because the fevers in America were so much greater. <laughs> and, but at the end of his speech, it's really an extraordinary uh, oration, and you can read it, it's 1802. Uh, it's kind of an anticlimactic when he gets to the end. The solution, he says, to the problem is to wear the proper clothing, wear flannel. He says, perhaps, this is his final line, perhaps there is nothing which would contribute more materially to the prevention of disease of our country than the general adoption of flannel underclothes. Now, the, they're all, I mean, all of these proposals, they're trying to make the best of what was obviously a bad situation. 
Um, we're, we, Americans were obsessed with climate, more than most people of the 18th century, because we were committed to the Enlightenment premise of the malleability of, of, uh, of, uh, of human beings. People were products of their environment, including their physical environment, and not uh, from their blood or from, from heredity. Uh, and this is the liberal faith that underlies America's birth, and of course it's still the basic uh, premise of American thinking. Um, and the whole Republican government lived based on this uh, epistemology, this Lockean epistemology that, that we acquired our, our, our sense of, of everything mainly from, from, from the environment. Um, human nature was plastic, something shaped and formed by experience and by external circumstances, including even the climate. Uh, since humans had all sprung from the same origins, most people accepted that, uh, as recorded in, in Genesis. Only the effects of environment through time could account for the obvious differences, racial and others, uh, between uh, people. Uh, even skin color was accounted for by, by climate. Many thought, of course, that the uh, uh, Africans' uh, blackness came from... Uh, the intense African sun. They had been scorched, so to speak, by, by the sun. Rush had his own peculiar theory. He thought that they uh, had uh, acquired it from leprosy, a disease, and that the, uh, when they got to uh, the New World, they would eventually whiten. And, of course, many other others felt as well that blacks would eventually whiten under the new uh, uh, climate, or at least they hoped so. Now, if these natural circumstances, including the climate, were pow uh, so powerful to create peculiar native diseases or to affect the colors of people's skins, then uh, Buffon's charges about the harmful nature of, of, uh, of uh, America's environment were, were serious indeed. In fact, as you know, they lay behind the only book um, that, that Thomas Jefferson wrote. In his notes on the state of Virginia, which, uh, as you well know, was published in a French edition in, first in 1785, Jefferson systematically attempted to answer the famous theories of Buffon. And indeed, he, he requested that one of the first copies of the book be delivered directly to Buffon. Now, the part, in sometimes modern editions, 20th century editions at least, that were designed for students, would be heavily edited, and the editors would take out those charts in the middle of the book which compared animals, which, of course, to Jefferson, were the heart and soul of, 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 of the book, precisely what he considered central to his arguments. Side by side, as you know, in order of, of, of size, Jefferson lists the animals of the new and the old worlds, accompanied by weights of each in pounds and ounces. In almost every case, the American animal is bigger. And not just a little bit bigger, but really big. Uh, if the European cow weighs 763 pounds, well, the American cow comes in at 2,500 pounds. <laughs> if the European bear weighs 153 pounds, then the American bear weighs 410 pounds. Now, as he describes the various um, animals, the moose, the beaver, the weasel, the fox, and finds them all equaling or bettering the European uh, counterparts, he gets carried away with, with excitement and, and even brings in the prehistoric mammoth to offset the old world's elephant. Jefferson was not, as you know, was not one for humor, but, uh, uh, but, but he's, he even attempts to match Buffon's sarcasm about the taper, which, as you, uh, as you remember, Buffon has derisively called the elephant of America, while describing it as being the size of a small cow. Uh, 
In retaliation, Jefferson says, to preserve our comparison, I will add that the wild boar, the elephant of Europe, is just about half the size of America's taper. That's his put down. Now, his anger at Buffon's charges is, is palpable, uh, and, and, and those of you who read the, the notes know this. He, he raises question after question about Buffon, uh, Buffon's and the other uh, Europeans' uh, uh, sources of, of data. Who were these European travelers who supplied information about America's animals? Were they real scientists, he asks? Was natural history the object of their travels? Did they measure or weigh the animals they, can't, they speak of? Did they know the animals uh, of their own country? Did they really know anything at all about animals, he says. His conclusion was clear. Buffon and the other European intellectuals did not know what they were talking about. Now, he was not someone who liked, as you know, personal confrontations. Indeed, he usually avoided them at all, at all costs. But, of course, when he went to Europe, he was determined to see Buffon. Uh, he, uh, he, who was in charge of, uh, Buffon was in charge of the royal cabinet and was a member, a full member, a fledged member of the court of Louis XVI. Uh, he took with him, Jefferson took with him a, a huge panther skin that he had purchased for $16, carried it across the Atlantic to present. Now, we don't have a, a vivid description, but can you imagine the court of Versailles enters there as the minister from the United States and bringing with him this huge panther skin that he wants to present right to Buffon. Uh, he was determined to prove this uh, point. Uh, Jefferson didn't hesitate at all uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, push Buffon on his ignorance of American uh, animals. He particularly stressed the great size of the American moose. Uh, he told Buffon that the American moose was so big that a European reindeer could walk under its belly. <laughs> well, under this kind of pressure, Poor Buffon, you have to imagine this, uh, how the poor old man, uh, beset by this earnest American with his panther skin and all of his <laughs> interests, uh, he finally, either, either in exasperation or, or fatigue, the, the great naturalist promised that if Jefferson could produce a single specimen with foot-long antlers, he, quoting here Jefferson, he would give up the question. Well, that's all Jefferson needed. I mean, my, that... Uh, he went busily to work writing friends everywhere in America, imploring them to send him all the skins, bones, and horns that they could find. He preferred, he said, entire stuffed animals. And, and a letter to, uh, to Archibald Cox in uh, January 7, 1786, is typical of, of his letters that he wrote. In my conversations with the Count de Buffon on the subject of natural history, I find him absolutely unacquainted with our elk and our deer. He has hitherto believed that our deer never had horns more than a foot long and has therefore classed them with the roebuck, which I am sure you know to be different. Will you take the trouble to procure for me the largest pair of buck's horns you can and a large skin of each color? If possible, take those from a buck just killed and leave all the bones on the, in, in the head on the skin with the horns on. Leave the bones and hoofs of the legs uh, of the legs and feet in the skin also, so that having only made an incision all along the belly and neck in order to take out the animal, we could, by sewing up that incision and stuffing the skin, present the true size and form of the animal. It would be a most precious present. Well, that's the kind of, 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 of letter he, he sent out. And, and so in this extraordinary, uh, I, I think you can only think of it as a comedy of, of 
scientific demonstration, bits and pieces of America's animals began arriving at Jefferson's residence. Now, tra travel, as you can well imagine, it takes six to eight weeks in some cases for these things to cross the Atlantic. Travel was not good for most of these specimens. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the birds and the animals that were sent whole decayed badly, and often even the skins and skeletons arrived missing hair and all sorts of, of, of parts. Now, Go Governor John Sullivan was given the, uh, the prime task of New Hampshire. Uh, he took the most trouble of all, for he was commissioned to get the moose that was going to demolish Buffon once and for all. Uh, Sullivan, governor of the state, sent a virtual army into the wilderness of New Hampshire. Uh, it, it cost him a huge amount of money. He cut through the wilderness to get to, to drag out uh, a moose. Uh, he, he even cut a 20-mile road through the, through the woods to, to drag it out. By the time the, the specimen arrived in, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, uh, uh, to be readied for its uh, transit across the Atlantic, it, had, uh, it was half rotten and it lost all of its hair and its head bones, including its horns. So, so Sullivan, Sullivan sent along the, 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 to Paris the horns of another animal. <laughs> this is it. He sends along another, horns of another animal, explaining rather blithely, I think, to Jefferson that they are not the horns of this moose, but nevertheless, they could be fixed on at pleasure. <laughs> Jefferson's answer to, uh, to Sullivan, this is October 5th, 1787. His colleagues are worrying about the Constitution, the new government, and he's, he's worried about the moose. This is a letter to Sullivan, written in October 5th, 1787. He's not got the Constitution on his mind. I received a few days ago the box containing the skin, bones, and horns of the moose and other animals, which Your Excellency has been so kind as to take so much trouble to obtain and forward. They were all in good condition, except that a good deal of the hair of the moose had fallen off. However, there remains still enough to give the good idea of the animal, and I am in hopes that Monsieur de Buffon will be able to have them stuffed and placed on his legs in the king's cabinet. Buffon was in the country when I sent the uh, box to the cabinet, so that I have, as yet, have no idea, no answer uh, from him. Uh, understandably, uh, Jefferson was not uh, not entirely happy with with what he was receiving. Uh, and, and, and not entirely happy with the effect they were having on Buffon. Although he asked all of his um, correspondents in, in America to send him, as I said from the Archibald Carey letter, send him the biggest things they could have, the biggest specimens they could find, he, he continually uh, apologized to Buffon for their smallness. This is his letter to Buffon on October 6th, the day after he had received this stuff um, from, from Governor Sullivan. I am happy to be able to present to you at this moment the bones and skin of a moose, the horns of another individual of the same species, the horns of the caribou, the elk, the deer, <laughs> uh, the spiked horned buck, and the roebuck. Can you all this stuff coming in? They're all rotting. Ah, I can't even imagine what Buffon thought. They all, come, they all come from New Hampshire and Massachusetts and were received by me yesterday. The skin of the moose was dressed with the hair on, but a great deal of it has come off and the rest is ready to drop off. The horns of the elk are remarkably small. See, everything's played up. I have certainly seen some of which, uh, which, which, which weighed five or six times as much. 
I must observe also that the horns of the deer are not a fifth or a sixth part of the weight of some that I have seen. I beg of you not to consider that these horns now sent as furnishing a specimen of their ordinary size. Well, apparently he convinced Buffon because he later recalled he promised in his next volume to set these things right, but he died directly afterwards. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, now, uh, uh, he died in 1788. Buffon, his natural history was carried on by colleagues to the end of the century. But Jefferson, of course, continued uh, to be interested in the size of America's animals. In 1789, he urged the president of, the, of Harvard to encourage the study of, of America's uh, natural history in order, as he said, to do justice to our country, its productions, and its genius. And uh, uh, in the mid-1790s, uh, uh, on the basis of some fossil remains, uh, probably belonging to a prehistoric anteater, he uh, concocted the evidence of a huge super lion, three times bigger than the African lion, and he presented his imagined beast to the uh, American Philosophical Society uh, and to the scientific world as the megalonyx, the great claw. Uh, <laughs> of course, humans were most important to Jefferson, and he was most sensitive on this point. Uh, he tells a story uh, of Benjamin Franklin and, uh, and him at a dinner party in Paris when they overlapped in, in the 1780s. Franklin was the host, and uh, Abbe Renal was there. The Abbe, as Jefferson tells the story, the Abbe set off in one of his usual oratorical tirades on the, uh, on the degeneration of man, men and animals in the New World. And Franklin, uh, good-humoredly, uh, said, well, let's just test this uh, empirically. And, and, and of course, uh, on one side of the table were uh, these Americans, six Americans, all very tall, six feet or nearly. And on the other side, uh, there were uh, uh, French. All the uh, French uh, were unusually tiny, said Jefferson. The Abbe himself, said Jefferson, being a mere shrimp. Uh, <laughs> now, this story became very famous and, and gets repeated uh, over the next generation. And the one I like best was by John Bristed, who was a, a British uh, immigrant who was a good American. He was a convert um, in his account of 1818. He recounts this story with a little embellishment, six stout, well-proportioned, tall, handsome Americans put in the shade the ludicrous Frenchmen, who were all little, lank, yellow, shriveled personages <laughs> resembling Jabba monkeys who peeked up at their opposite neighbors and were silent. Uh, uh, see where the anti-French-American feeling it comes from, this kind of... Uh, now, in his notes on Virginia, Jefferson was very anxious, as you perhaps know, to refute Renal's charges that America had produced no geniuses. Uh, he worked out a as he as people have pointed out in these papers, he was always working out in mathematical calculations, and, and he worked out a mathematical calculation of genius, kind of intellectual uh, bookkeeping. And he concluded that America had indeed contributed its share. Three geniuses, uh, Franklin, Washington, and David Rittenhouse. Um, that was uh, uh, three for a population of a bit over three million. He thought that was pretty good. France, he said, has 20 million people, so it should have about 18 geniuses, and he just assumes they do have 18 geniuses. Uh, England, with 10 million people, should have nine geniuses, but it had none, not a single genius. <laughs> and then he wrote, 
the sun of her glory is fast ascending to the horizon. Her philosophy has crossed the channel. Her freedom, the Atlantic, and herself seems passing to that awful disillusion whose issue is not given human foresight to scan. Now, Jefferson's lifelong um, defense of, of, of the... Uh, and of the prowess and, and virtue of the Indian, I think grows, grew out of this uh, same passionate desire to protect the American environment against European uh, uh, aspersions. Uh, Buffon was wrong, he wrote in his notes. The Indian is neither more defective in ardor nor more impotent uh, with his female than the white reduced to the same diet and exercise. He likewise described the Indian's hands, wrists, hair, beard, and, and, and either he found that the uh, Indian was the equal of the white man or explained any differences in terms of, of different habits. Uh, even some of his, uh, his uh, fellow Americans thought that he was going too far in measuring every little bit and piece of the Indian's body. But for Jefferson, of course, the stakes were, were very high. Jefferson could readily doubt the capacities of, of blacks, who after all came from Africa, but he could never admit any inferiority in the Native Americans, who were products of the very climate and environment that his uh, fellow Americans would, would grow up in, uh, and uh, these transplanted Europeans. For Jefferson, as he put it, the Indian had to be, in body and mind, equal to the white man. Now, more than Jefferson was involved in this, obviously, all American intellectuals, it seems to me, were involved in, in, this, uh, in this issue. Calls went out to all parts of the intellectual community for information about the uh, American habitat. Clergymen in such obscure places as Mason, New Hampshire, faithfully compiled meteorological uh, and demographic records. Uh, people f were fascinated with the longevity of persons. They kept, who, how many people lived to be 90? How many people lived to be 100? And they kept records of this. Uh, otherwise, exclusive, uh, this is when I first became interested, exclusively, uh, exclusive literary journals like the Columbian Magazine or the North American Review publicized periodic weather charts from such distant correspondents in Brunswick, Maine or, or Albany, New York, it would be strange to see. I wondered, what are these people doing in these kinds of literary journals? It would be like the New Yorker books today having meteorological charts in the, in the midst of all these reviews. And, and it's because they're gathering information about this climate. They're worried about it. Temperature taking, of course, became everybody's way of participating in, the, uh, in, in this enlightened science. From 1763 to 1795, Ezra Stiles, uh, who became president of Yale, filled six volumes with his daily temperature taking, and, and, and Je Jefferson uh, did, uh, did the same. Every intellectual felt the need to present a paper or, or, um, to some learned society on, on the subject of America's climate uh, or America's health. Six papers in the, in the 1779 uh, um, year of the APS, the American Philosophical Society Proceedings, six papers alone on America's climate. Um, there were lots of articles showing that, that Americans were changing their climate. It's becoming more moderate. They were filling in the swamps. They're cutting down the trees, something that appalled Europeans. They couldn't understand how Americans could be so careless with trees since they were so precious in, in Europe. And Americans just want to cut them down because they thought that the heavy forests were causing the wet, dank climate. Um, they, they were capable of changing even their physical environment, they thought, and changing the climate. That's how confident they were in their enlightened hopes. Um, Samuel Williams is a character that I found 
most interesting in this respect. He was the Hollis Professor of Natural and Experimental Philosophy at Harvard. Where else? He wanted to measure just how much moisture American trees, trees actually threw off. First, he figured out how many grains of water were exuded by two leaves in six hours, and he came to the conclusion 16 grains of water. The next step, and this is the one I find overwhelming, he had to count the number of leaves on a tree. <laughs> he came up with a figure, 21,192 leaves on the tree. Then he figured out from this, of course it's easy, then he figured out from this data how much moisture the tree expelled in 12 hours. Then how many trees in an acre, and finally concluded that 3,875 gallons of water were exuded every 12 hours for an acre of forest. So cutting down the forest would have the effect of drying up America and make it less moist uh, in the future. Uh, European travelers, as I say, were shocked at this kind of behavior because they thought trees were much more precious than Americans did. Now, the constant underlying anxiety that, that European um, uh, critics might be right, uh, I think, uh, ran through much of this uh, thinking. What, a, what if Renal's point about the absence of genius in America was correct? By 1800, there are lots of hand-wringing uh, Phi Beta Kappa addresses worrying about America's lack of intellectual achievement. Uh, they weren't sure what was retarding it, but many of them felt that maybe it is this climate that we're living in. Uh, maybe the, the, there is something wrong with our environment. Charles Brockton Brown, the, the, the novelist, abandoned his novel writing career to devote his energies to examining the American environment. In 1804, he translated the French, uh, from, from French into English a, a book written by Volney, uh, whom you've already uh, mentioned earlier, uh, the philosopher who didn't like America's climate. Volney went back, of course, and wrote a book called The Soil and Climate of the United States. Uh, and he had a very disparaging view of that climate. And Brown, even though there was a London edition, I mean, an English translation already available in London, uh, Brown abandoned his, uh, his writing of novels to translate it once again because he wanted to argue with, with uh, Volney in, in the notes. How, that's how important he felt this issue uh, uh, was. Um, now, but the general thrust, I think, was, was optimistic. Every, uh, every description of, of America's environment in the early republic was, was overblown. All the state histories that were written in this period uh, were uh, all read like uh, present-day uh, travel brochures. Um, here's one uh, from, uh, that, that uh, Lige will appreciate. It's from uh, Jeremy Belknap writing about New Hampshire um, in his history of New Hampshire. He wanted to refute European critics, he said, who have represented America as a graveyard to Europeans. And he offered longevity charts and glowing descriptions of New Hampshire's weather. He says the air of the forest was remarkably pure. A profusion of effluvia from the resinous trees impart to the air a balsamic quality, which is extremely favorable to health. And the numerous streams of limpid water cause currents of fresh air, which, in the highest, which are in the highest degree salubrious. All in all, he says, the weather of New Hampshire diffuses health and imparts vigor to the human frame. So you probably... I'm going to live a lot longer staying in New Hampshire. Uh, in 1800, the American Philosophical Society formally petitioned Congress 
to transform the, descent, uh, the uh, 10 year uh, census into a detailed mortality and occupational survey, and I'm quoting here, to determine the effect of the soil and climate of the United States on the inhabitants thereof, promising even before the data were in that truths will result very satisfactory to our citizens that under the joint influence of soil, climate, and occupation, the duration of human life in this portion of the earth will be found at least equal to what it is in any other and that its population increases with a rapidity unequaled in all others. Now, from this desire to, uh, to uh, defend the American environment came all the excited exaggerations of America's magnificent rivers, its expansive uh, forests, and its sublime cataracts. Jefferson, of course, uh, the, the, the perennial Pollyanna, summed up the optimistic side. He wrote a letter to Volney, who was kept up correspondence in, in 1805, uh, still obsessed with the issue of, of, of climate. I prefer much the climate of the United States to that of Europe, uh, Jefferson wrote, I think in a more cheerful one. And then he goes on to compare the America's climate with that of England, which was so gloomy, he said, that people there tended to commit suicide. So Jefferson went on to tell Volney that America's sunny skies have eradicated from our, uh, our constitutions all dispositions to hang ourselves, which we might otherwise have inherited from our English ancestors. Uh, you have to take this seriously. That's the problem. In time, of course, uh, Buffon's charges, and the, uh, partly due to uh, von Humboldt's uh, findings, but uh, the, the climate issue w w fell away was forgotten. Um, the geographical environment was overwhelmed by the political and cultural environment, especially by the growth of, of the market economy and the busyness of people. Rush became obsessed by the busyness of people, and he felt that it was driving Americans insane. And, and he began experimenting with, uh, uh, with, with creating insane asylums for, to get removed people from the busy world. So the culture was more important than, than nature, eventually. Uh, but the, the legacy of, of these European accusations uh, about our uh, physical environment uh, would linger on throughout the 19th century and, and uh, uh, help to explain why Americans uh, had the notorious habit of boasting of the bigness of nature in their country. Saw ye ever such a land as this, Herman Melville uh, had his countrymen say to, to foreigners in his uh, uh, novel, Marty, published in 1849. Is it not a great and extensive republic? Pray, observe how tall we are. Just feel of our thighs. Now feel of our beards. Are we not a glorious people? Uh, Melville uh, obviously had a problem with America. By the middle of the 19th century, uh, perhaps many of Melville's readers had lost the historical context uh, out of which this obsession with our size and, and health had, had risen. But there was a time, I think, at the very beginning of our, uh, of our national history when such extravagant, boastful uh, uh, boasting was, was both uh, understandable and justifiable. So uh, the next time you uh, drive across America or drive into towns where you can see a sign saying that this little town has the largest sunflowers in the world or some little county with the largest cows uh, in the world, then you'll remember where it all began. Thank you.